But when I teach them how to deadlift, I'm going to emphasize position initially, right? I want them to uh, allow themselves to actually express range of motion and to load their hamstrings, to load their glutes, and not just rely on hinging through their TL junction. Because as we know, like uh, a deadlift should be a lower body exercise, right? It should be a trunk stability exercise with range of motion through the limbs and through the lower body and strength and power being developed in the pushing muscles of our lower body. That was Coach Justin Moore of Parabolic Performance talking about the importance of correctly patterning the deadlift for optimal, transferable athletic results. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 78 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Today on the show, we got a great one for you. We got Coach Justin Moore. He is the Performance Education Coordinator at Parabolic Performance and Rehabilitation. And we have had some prodigious young coaches on this show, uh, such as Matt Van Dyke, Cameron Joss, Max Schmarzo, uh, guys that I look at and I think, man, I, what was I doing in my 20s? You know, uh, And these, these coaches are all just doing tremendous work in the field. And Justin is no exception to that rule. I first came across Justin's work I've taken a few uh, postural restoration seminars in the last year, and it's really just been an intriguing and eye-opening experience for me. And I'm always hungry for more information in that realm because I've had a lot of athletes, and, and even before I came across PRI, like I started to realize that my athletes with with the worst posture and the most muscular tightnesses and weaknesses seem to generally be those who got the least out of the weight room over their years with me. The ones who it just nothing, even though they got a lot stronger, it was almost like tight, tight muscles got tighter and weak muscles didn't get stronger and they weren't moving better in their sport. And coming across the PRI work and then even more specifically reading some of Justin's articles and, and I first came across those on Dark Side Strength uh, it really has allowed me to get a lot better insight on what it really means to set up a squat or deadlift, what muscles should be active, uh, what muscles shouldn't be. Uh, it's, it's actually helped me to learn a little bit more about why when I do a lot of weightlifting and powerlifting, my back and lower back gets really like big and strong, yet my hamstrings kind of stay weak, and which 
By the way, if you're a sprinter or want to run fast, you're a jumper or an athlete in general, to be completely honest, that's not very good. Like <laughs> you, you want to have, you want to build the muscles you're supposed to be building. And, and a lot of us don't due to not setting up the lift correctly and postural issues. And so, uh, Justin is going to go in, uh, on that today in a great manner and in in-depth manner and specifically going to be talking about how he's integrating postural restoration or PRI into his practice as a coach. Uh, he's going to talk about some of the aspects there, such as alignment, posture, the axial skeleton, length tensioning. He's going to get then into a deep dive of sorts into how he works the squat and deadlift in particular. And so unless you live under a rock, I mean, these are lifts that are uh, big time players in almost any athletic performance program. And so knowing how to get the most out of those from a patterning perspective, getting the muscles to fire you want to fire is huge. Uh, and seriously, like every time I've worked with a good athlete, like an athlete who's dynamic in their sport, uh, I've, I've just noticed the common trend of they, they get more hamstrings in their squatting and more hamstrings in their deadlifting than other athletes. So why is that? <laughs> uh, well, Justin's going to go in on that. And uh, this is just such a cool episode. I love alternating topics of, of strength and speed and track coaches and strength coaches and sports nutritionists and psychologists. And this is a kick-ass strength and conditioning episode. You guys are going to love it. And this is, again, stuff that's driving the field forward. So let's get to episode 78 with Justin Moore. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Joel, it, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I'm humbled and, uh, you know, I've been following your stuff for a really long time. And some of the people you've had on this podcast to be, be a part of what you're putting out right now is really exciting for me. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to have you. And could you kick it off for those people who might not be familiar with who you are? Could you give a little bit of your background as an athlete, coach, and who are some of the biggest mentors uh, to you and in, in what have brought you to where you are now? Yeah, so uh, I have kind of a classic strength and conditioning story. I, I spent my whole life playing sports from the time I was young. Uh, my parents did a, a great job of exposing me to a ton of different athletic endeavors. So uh, I actually played soccer for most of my life. Um, I played basketball, I wrestled, and I played a ton of baseball when I was young. And then around the time I hit high school after playing travel soccer for a long time, I realized like I was a lot bigger than most of the soccer kids who were you know playing high level athletics at, at that uh, at that level. And so I decided to transition to football. And the first couple of years in high school were a little bit rough uh, making that transition. But eventually, I ended up starting both ways on varsity. Um, got the opportunity to play Division three college football at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Unfortunately, while I was there, I tore my ACL three times in three years. Uh, so that was a little bit rough. But what that allowed me to do is to gain an appreciation for rehab, for training, and for what I could do to impact my body and get myself back on the field. So after three ACL tears, um, I worked myself back into shape, You know, worked with my you know, rehab people to, to help me get back on the field. Ended up finishing up my master's degree at Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, I actually have an undergraduate in communications and a master's in sports administration. So I have no formal background in strength and conditioning that would have led me here. But my love and passion for what I was doing in the gym um, kind of springboarded me to get an internship at Seton Hall when I was in graduate school because I decided I just didn't want to sit behind a desk and, and wear a suit and tie all day. Um, and so I, I fell in love with strength and conditioning, interned at Seton Hall for a semester, and then reached out to uh, a guy named Angelo Tadaro, who was working for Parabolic Performance and Rehab at the time, and asked him like if he was looking for any help. I just wanted to volunteer and 
uh, get some more experience and hopefully get my foot in the door in the industry. Um, and through that, I actually parlayed that into a part-time coaching job. And that was working out so well that uh, that year we took on basically what was NFL combine training for the first time at Parabolic. And they asked me to become a full-time coach and to assist with the combine training. And from there, after working with our combine performance you know, athletes, um, I actually ended up taking a full-time role and then became the next year the head of the combine training program. Um, and now I'm the direct, I'm in the coordinator of education for the performance department at Parabolic. I work at the Hackensack location where I, <laughs> I primarily work with really elite level figure skaters, which most people are shocked to hear. And it's a, it's a really interesting population that's taught me a lot. Uh, but I work there, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting our combine program again. So I'll be going down to Manalpin, New Jersey, uh, to head up that. And so that, that's kind of my track. I've been, in, I've been a formal head coach for about three and a half years now. So I'm you know, really young in the industry, um, excited to continue to learn and grow and, and constantly trying to improve myself. Uh, but at the same time, really lucky to take on as much responsibility I have, as I have right now. Um, and I'm able to influence a lot of people through that, which is exciting. Uh, as far as mentors, three people who have in, really influenced me a lot um, in my career so far, who most people may not have even heard of, but eventually they certainly will know these people. Uh, Dr. Joe Myron is a PT at Parabolic. He is the guy who introduced me to PRI through and through. Um, he sat me down after taking a, a myokin course, and we'll talk more about this. But you know, he, he mentioned the ischial condylar adductor and, and started showing me why my extension dominant pattern may not be the best thing for me, and could be you know a source of some of my knee problems at the time that I was seeing him for, and uh, and I was blown away. And so I, I kind of fell down that that journey with him. And then the next guy was a guy named Cody Plofker. So he owns his own gym now. Um, and he was the guy who, you know, he was diving in at the same time that I was. And so me and him spent just about every waking hour of every day working alongside each other, bouncing ideas back and forth. And, and he was instrumental in really getting me to understand where all this fit in and helping me in my, my journey through the coursework. Um, and then Mike Camperini, who was a former intern at IFAST, now works at Northeastern. He's in PT school. That kid is one of the smartest dudes I've ever met, and he just he's going to have a really bright future. He's another guy who's worked under Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman and, and taught me a ton when he was uh, working at Parabolic with me. Um, and then just people who have influenced me in the industry who I don't necessarily have as personal connection with as those guys, but uh, you know Pat Davidson, who I've you know met recently, become really good friends with. Um, he's influenced me to appreciate not only the depths of the PRI system and kind of how it fits into performance but also the time and the place for like those cognitive biomechanical building drills that we may work on from a PRI perspective and that there's a time also to just grind and train and really focus on external outputs and, and that's been big from him. Uh, and then Bill Hartman, Mike Robertson, Zach Couples, Doug Kachijan, uh, Brian Mann when it comes to VBT, uh, and then Lee Taft when it comes to multidirectional speed. He's, he's been a huge influence and I actually work with one of – uh, a guy who used to train under him, and I've learned a lot from him. And then finally, the original Dark Side Strength Crew. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody would know about me at this point if it wasn't for those guys. You know, reaching out to me through Instagram and and asking me to do something for them, and, and that kind of led to a really great thing. So Ryan Brown and uh, Quinn Hennock were were really big and, and instrumental in me getting some of my thoughts out there. 
Yeah, well, hey, it's um, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is uh, I with the figure skaters, there's some great coaches who work with figure skaters. I was just doing an episode with Christian Thibodeau on it. Figure skaters, it was a big population that he would train. So it's I've never worked with them, but it's definitely got to be an interesting, a totally different ball game compared to a lot of clients. I tell you, man, I, I've learned so much in the last year and a half of, of working with them. Um, they are mostly homeschooled. They live at the ice rink, training six days a week, two to three times a day. Uh, they've essentially been taught that weightlifting is no good. Um, and so, you know, they, they think it's going to make them big and bulky. And what that's forced me to do is appreciate their perspective, what we can do to help them, um, especially from like a speed, power, and plyometrics perspective. I had to really dive into that end of things and, and learn a lot more about it. And then I had to learn to communicate and, and to build a relationship with some of these girls who, you know, as a big, strong former football player, I have almost nothing in common with. Um, and it's been a really rewarding and unique experience that I think has made me a far better coach. Yeah, it's exciting too. And you mentioned, you know, some of your uh, some of these young guns in the field, including yourself. I mean, I'm I'm a few years into my 30s now, but it's just doing this podcast too. It's just so cool to see all the brilliant uh, strength coaches and kind of that decade that decade below who are being influenced by such such incredible people and it's really cool to see where this industry is going and and i i always like just hearing those stories it's really cool to hear how you've come up and and the people that you are coming coming up alongside yeah there's there's some big hitters coming up and luckily like as i said there's some of those guys who i've met maybe through social media or just read their stuff and it's influenced me to a high degree like we're lucky we get to come in, come up in an era where the amount of information on the internet that's available is is just incredible and those guys are really free with their knowledge uh, and willing to help and so we benefit from that yeah for sure i i think that for me it was like i was just getting my early 20s it was like the dawn of the internet age and and there's so much with social media there's so much more out there this the accessibility has just gone through the roof and it's really cool to see some of the effects of that uh so first question training question and this could be dissected into who knows how many but in a general sense how has pri or postural restoration institute principles had an impact on your coaching and what are the biggest uh the biggest principles you tend to have in your head as you coach and write programs Cool. So I'm going to I'm going to go. And if you want to corral me at some point and kind of land me in certain directions or, or stop me, you know, go ahead. But um, I, I like to break it down into two basic kind of categories. One is going to be like the specific corrective exercises or the specific activities that PRI utilizes. They've been influential on us in terms of the way that we approach our movement prep and the way that we approach helping athletes to manage some of the uh, maybe mobility issues or motor control issues they may be having to optimize their movement capabilities. But that's a very small aspect of what I do. And I think when I've worked with, um, you know, interns or, or people who have come to us and who have, are aware of what I've written about and aware of my PRI background, uh, they'll be surprised, like how little of it we actually use within a session. It may constitute two to three activities of a couple breaths each, and then we're moving on. The biggest thing that it's done for me is it's given me a lens through which to view all movement uh, with a more discerning eye, I think. And that, that's been the key is like every time that I watch uh, a lift or a sprint or a, any sort of normal or typical uh, quote unquote corrective exercise, I hate that term because I don't think we're <laughs> correcting anything, but uh, a corrective type exercise or a movement prep activity my lens is totally different than it was when I came out of college, and that's what PRI has given me. Um, and so when I'm coaching something like a deadlift, because I know we'll talk about squat in a little bit, but when I'm coaching a deadlift, 
I'm having people soften their knees before they start. I'm having them be able to put their weight through the middle of the foot and shift their center of mass back a little bit. I'm having them exhale to move their ribs into triplanar internal rotation and find and feel some abs. And from that position and that position that they set themselves up in, I can now eccentrically load their hamstrings in a way that's going to allow them to actually use the muscles that are intended to be used in a deadlift, as opposed to a lot of people who are like, grab the bar, arch hard, <laughs> chest up and go. Uh, and that, that kind of, you know, appreciation for the setup and for the movement, um, that is going to allow us to load the joints and structures that we actually want to load is imperative. Um, and then the other one is just a good example is like a push-up. I think push-ups are a fantastic exercise that get butchered all the time. Um, I think when I'm coaching a push-up, I'm setting somebody up like in a plank position where their pelvis and their rib cage are facing each other. I'm having them exhale to move their ribs down and back and find some abs. I'm having them reach through the top of the push-up so that I can sit a curved scapula on a congruent rib cage and I can get some serratus to go along with those abs and help to retract the thorax. And then I'm having them control that position all the way through the bottom with an emphasis on maintaining that congruent relationship between uh, the rib cage and the pelvis so that I can face the thoracic diaphragm and the pelvic diaphragm with one another um, and get a more optimal breath and more optimal intra-abdominal pressure and pressure management. So those are just a couple examples of that lens and, and the way that I look at movement and the way I coach movement um, within the gym that, that's really been impactful on me. And so some of the principles that I think about are, are things like position, right? And Mike Robertson killed the position talk on your podcast not too long ago. But I think like when we define our terms, right, that word posture and position gets thrown around a lot. What I'm thinking about is the, the starting position of the axial skeleton, right? The, the cranium the rib cage, the pelvis, and the spine. They set the foundation by which I can then express movement through the appendicular skeleton, right, through the limbs. And I think a lot of times in strength conditioning and even physical therapy, we get caught up looking at the motion of limbs without appreciation for the foundation for that, right? And I heard a great analogy when I was at The Reckoning recently at Mike Ranfone's place, um, and it, it, one of the presenters said that it's like, Imagine trying to open and close a door, right? That door opens and closes very naturally. If I move that door frame slightly to the left, even by an inch, now that door is going to slam into the wall and it's not going to open and close correctly. And no matter what you do to the hinges on that door or to the door itself, it's not going to change, right? You have to then bring the door frame back to where it needs to be in order for that congruent movement to happen. And that's what we're looking at from a positional perspective. I want the proximal structures of the body, the rib cage and the pelvis to form the foundation so that I can actually move and express movement through the hip, through the femur, through the shoulder, right? And I think that's been one of the most important parts of, uh, of appreciating PRI. As I said, with a deadlift, if I want to express movement through a hip as opposed to a spine, I need to position the pelvis so that I can actually load into hip flexion. And if I want to do a push-up, I need to appreciate that a shoulder joint is a scapula that sits on a rib cage and has a humerus going into this, the glenoid fossa, right? So if I just appreciate or think about the humerus, and I don't give the humerus and the scapula a foundation of a good rib cage position to sit on, I'm never going to maximize my shoulder movement. 
So that's one. And then the other is length tension relationships of muscles, right? So if we're looking at muscles, we talk about insertion and origin. Really, we're looking at just attachment sites. And all muscles are going to attach in multiple places. And we need to appreciate that uh, a muscle, and this is basic physiology, right? A muscle is going to contract optimally and produce force optimally at its resting length. If it's too long and too eccentrically oriented, it's going to have a really hard time contracting. We're actually going to need greater efferent input from the brain to even make that muscle contract and shorten. And if it stays in that lengthened position long enough, we're actually going to get changes to muscle spindles and some of the mechanoreceptors that are going to respond to stretch because the threshold for stretch has now increased. So people are not going to be able to feel their muscles working as much, and they're not going to be able to get that stretch reflexes effectively if they're always long. On the inverse of that, if a muscle is held always short, it's not going to contract optimally anyway because it's already too short. So when we talk about things like hamstrings especially, right, people walk around in this anteriorly tilted pelvic position with an eccentrically oriented hamstring and they wonder why they can't ever feel their hamstrings and they wonder why their hamstrings always feel tight. And it's like you can stretch that thing all you want but really what you're doing is you're taking an already stretched rubber band and you're pulling apart even further. So appreciating the length tension relationship of muscles and why stretching is not the answer or not always the answer has been important there too. And then it's also given me an appreciation of triplanar movement and gait, right? So um, I think we live in a three-dimensional world. Everything we do occurs in three planes of motion. And I think we try to categorize and bucket things into sagittal, frontal, transverse. But if we look at sprinting, right, which looks like an entirely sagittal-based activity, there is triplanar movement going on throughout the entire body. Every muscle acts in three planes of motion. Every bone, including all three bones of the pelvis, move in three planes of motion. The ribs rotate in three planes of motion. And that appreciation of gait and how everything we do comes back to gait is really important because we have to walk and we have to be able to move in three planes. Otherwise, we're going to compensate. Um, and then from there, respiration and the power of pressure management, right? So understanding that respiration has a mechanical effect, it has a physiological effect, and it has an autonomic effect on everything we do, right? If I can manage pressure through airflow and respiration in that axial skeleton, I'm going to be able to express greater range of motion and have more movement options in my limbs because I've set the foundation through which those limbs can move. And so that's been really important to me. And I've seen some incredible changes. I had an athlete yesterday who I evaled, who's a combine athlete. Guy's got back erectors that look like pythons. And, uh, you know, he's, he's never really gotten a good breath. And he's, when we taught him how to get a good breath out and then how to exhale with abs, get those ribs into a better position, keep them in a good position, and then allow for the diaphragm to do its job as a primary muscle of respiration, all of a sudden, ranges of motion were opening up. He, he dropped 60 degrees of internal rotation on his right shoulder. He improved both of active straight leg raise to a full 90. Uh, no longer had any of like the tightness he felt in his hamstrings. And that was with two sets of five breaths. So understanding where pressure is in the thorax and how people are managing pressure is really important. And then understanding that if somebody is sympathetically driven and stressed and toned and unable to shut that off, that that breathing can be a powerful window into the autonomic nervous system and allow this person to get out of that flight or flight response and to express some of the movement variability that they inherently have. 
Um, and then from there, the last one, as I said, is, is variability um, and management of center of mass, right? I think that's a really big one that people don't appreciate. And it's, it's actually pretty simple. It's like, where is this person holding their center of mass? If they're on the balls of their feet, if their pelvis is forward and anteriorly tilted, if their rib cage is moving forward, and if their cranium is going forward, then they're going to have a really hard time sitting back into a squat, right? Because eventually they're going to run out of room. They're already too forward. And so a lot of people that I see can't move their center of mass back. And so what they're going to do is, and I actually saw a great post from Pat Davidson yesterday talking about uh, sagittal plane being about managing management of one center of mass forward and backward, right? The ultimate sagittal plane concept is, is can you stand upright against gravity? And if you are, you're going to find a way to do that as a human who's upright. So if I feel like I'm falling forward, right? And instead of falling on my face, I'm going to extend my back because now that balances out the sensation that I'm falling forward and allows me to be more upright. And so if I can teach somebody to actually find their heels and get their center of mass back, and be able to exhale and move their rib cage back and be able to bring their pelvis not into posterior tilt necessarily, but into a more neutral position from a position of anterior tilt and to be able to get their cranium to come back a little bit more. Now I'm going to have a more authentic breath and that authentic breath just happens to correspond with good axial skeleton position, which is then going to allow me to express movement through the rest of my limbs. Um, and so those things are the major facets of what PRI has done for me. And that permeates through every programming decision and every coaching decision I make because I want to put people in the best possible spot they can to safely and effectively drive a stimulus into them that they can do over a long period of time. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. I love it, man. So there's so much, uh, there's so much gold in what you just said there. And I was trying to kind of write down a few follow-ups to ask you along the way, because I mean, just even in that little bit there, there are so many things for coaches to kind of take in, and, and at least new lines of thinking. You know, like okay, like that makes sense, and and maybe looking at athletes in a different way. And the first thing I was thinking about as you were talking was, and this is a really simple, maybe even a meathead thing. And I forget exactly what coach I. Uh, I heard this from, but it was like basically athletes are usually they're kind of arm people or torso people. It, 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 I don't know if you ever heard that, but I was thinking I was like, yeah, well, if you're if your torso, if you're you're mismanaging some of the the positioning, it's the force that of your lifting or whatever is going to have to go to the arms, right? Like you, the arms will have to compensate for a torso that isn't uh, doesn't have the variability and isn't uh, moving properly. Yeah, no, you're 100 percent right, and the same thing could be said for the lower body, right? Knees, ankles hip joints, right? Whatever it is that's away from midline, something is going to have to take the force. Something is going to have to take the, the slack for movement. And as you said, it could be the arms. When we think of sprinting too, this is an interesting one, but we most people don't recognize the importance of trunk rotation, even though it may not be extremely obvious, right? Trunk rotation and frontal plane movement of the trunk is huge when we're talking about sprinting, right? And the ability to actually get triplanar movement of the ribs and the ability to actually get some frontal plane movement of the entire pelvis as like a seesaw or of the rib cage moving up and down in the frontal plane, uh, that is huge for effective gait mechanics when sprinting. Uh, and if we don't have that, then maybe now we're swinging, we're, we're relying on an arm action that's just swinging a shoulder into hyperextension, right? Or maybe we're not able to get as much 
um, of a push off during acceleration in sprinting because I have to put my next foot down. Otherwise, I'm going to fall on my face because I wasn't able to create that uneven seesaw belt line at the pelvis when I go to toe off phase um, in preparation for the next ground stroke. So that that stuff is, is huge and, and you see it everywhere. It's like the best athletes are going to be the best compensators and we don't want to take that away from them, but we have to appreciate that if we're not loading the structures we want to load or we're, we're constantly using the same structures by loading them because we're using compensatory strategies, then our options are limited and over time that could lead to some problems. Yeah, that, that was something actually you mentioned that in sprinting in the frontal plane. That was something I noticed not too long after it, I, it was either uh, my first postural respiration or, or uh, integration for fitness seminar. And I uh, I was watching a common warm-up drill I utilize is, is just like walking in and kind of bringing the pelvis towards the shoulder of the frontal plane and trying to focus on that to in like an accelerative sense. And I noticed an athlete who couldn't do it had like no space between like his, his – um, between his sternum and his spine that was like compressed and i was just like okay so this guy just can't like i could cue this guy all i want to like i could i could throw every cue at this guy till but his spine being compressed just is choking that out of him and so that was when some um that was when some dots really got connected for me in that it, it it's kind of like and just even really in the last few years like understanding that the brain is pretty smart and if the body's in the right position all of a sudden you're going to move the way you want you don't even need a coach telling you the the proper cue sometimes it's just if if everything's lined up and has the variability then movement can happen yeah i think the appreciation of, of movement as like a uh, an emergent property right of, of organism, task, and environment, right? That interaction is what's going to create the best strategy for that person in that moment. And if they don't, if as an organism, they don't have those degrees of freedom available to them, you can coach them till you're blue in the <laughs> face, right? It's like trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. You just don't have the, uh, the movement option to go there. And that's why understanding and appreciating what range of motions this person actually has available to them is huge and then deciding you know how much how much more is enough right do i really want them to be able to kick their shin to their forehead in an active straight leg race <laughs> definitely not that's too much you know so it's like I, I want them to have enough movement options and some sports and some athletes are going to need more than others but i want them to have enough movement options to express what i'm trying to have them do and to get into the positions that I'm trying to have them get into, but that's it, right? And so if you have somebody who you see they're unable to create that approximation of the rib cage and the pelvis on one side during uh, toe-off phase and sprinting, right? When you're driving that swing side leg up, and you know, I wanna I wanna have that side of the hemipelvis, I want that ilium to go higher in space than the side that I'm towing off of. And I wanna have that rib cage lower and closer to that ilium so that I almost create a side bending effect on the swing side while on the opposite side in order to truly get off of that leg I want that ilium on my uh, toe off side to be lower and I want more space between the rib cage on that side and the ilium on that side and so uh, that appreciation if they don't have frontal plane abduction on their right side say or let's say they don't have IR and adduction on their left side or they can't get air out to get that rib cage to come closer to that pelvis. We can cue them all we want and do all the drills we want. It, it, it's probably not going to get there. Yeah, it also makes it a lot more. I think it makes it a lot more fun because every every athlete is even more of a puzzle too. And you trying to get this optimal mechanic, they have restrictions 
can't do it if you you queue them they can't do it and then going into the hardware i guess if you will well i guess it's more software but but kind of that um just their joints and variability and seeing where the limitations are uh i think it's great stuff I, i'd like to just follow up really quickly too with uh you mentioned variability and and that's a word that we hear in pri a lot uh and i I believe you kind of were talking about it even in like the deadlift, not cueing through the center of the foot rather than the heel, like or the idea of not locking out an athlete's degrees of freedom. I, I mean, I'm just working my way through the um, the PRI ranks a little bit. So I, my understanding actually isn't isn't that massive of it. And could you go a little bit into like what is it? What does variability really mean? How does that play out? So variability to me is, is one of the basic tenets of performance that we're looking at, and it's a sliding scale, right? So some people are going to need more variability than others. And, and let me back up for a second and just define what I look at as variability. Variability to me is, is having options, right? That's all. And more of it is not necessarily better, right? If we're talking about a power lifter or a sprinter, 100-meter sprinter, those people should not have a ton of variability. If they have movement options at all of their joints, like if they can express 45 degrees of internal rotation bilaterally, their shoulders move great, their trunk rotates all over the place, they have 100 degrees of hip flexion, if they have all of that perfectly through, I may start questioning how good of a sprinter they are or how good of a power lifter they are, right? We need some of these specific adaptations to be great at specific events that are going to decrease variability, right? We need to decrease variability in order to increase specificity and drive performance. Now on the flip side of that, if somebody is dealing with a movement restriction that is hindering performance, or outside of my realm in the PT world, if they're injured, right, or in pain, that's when we may need to open up more variability. We may need to increase their movement options because essentially what's happening is they're relying on one strategy or they're relying on one thing um, or one uh, position, let's say, that is now being overloaded and is now creating some sort of pathology or some sort of issue that is harming performance. And at that point, we need to increase variability, right? So to me, and, and Robertson talked about this a lot too, the sagittal plane, right, is going to be a huge uh do not pass go, do not collect $200 kind of thing. If you're unable to manage that, then your variability is going to be limited, right? And this is why we see power lifters who are so restricted and sprinters who might have significant restrictions, right? But they can express power like crazy. If your thorax is going forward and your pelvis is going forward, right? You are going to be limited in your variability because you are stuck in the sagittal plane, right? So your frontal and transverse planes are going to be locked. And PRI talks about this all the time, how being able to manage sagittal plane position and have sagittal plane control unlocks a frontal plane and a transverse plane. And so variability to me is about having options. It's variability at every system of your body, right, from your autonomic nervous system to your respiratory system to your movement system. It's the the options you have. If we have, you know, if we look at blood pressure, we need blood pressure to go super high when I'm doing a max one rep max squat, right? But when I go to sleep, my blood pressure should drop a lot. And if it doesn't fluctuate and it doesn't move, then I have now decreased variability and I have less options. And that can eventually be pathological, right? If I have too high a blood pressure. Same thing with the movement system, right? If I have no hip internal rotation because I am locked in a sagittal plane, then I'm going to limit my degrees of freedom and I have limited variability. I don't have the option to go in internal rotation because I don't have it. 
So if I want to open up that option and I want to increase variability, I need to own my sagittal plane, I need to get frontal plane control, and then I need to dabble in the transverse plane in order to actually be able to express those movement options. And again, like it depends. If you're a field and court sport athlete, you need more variability than if you're a you know straight ahead inline hundred meter sprinter. Um, but in terms of the deadlift, yeah, you're you're spot on, right? We need if, if I'm having somebody deadlift heavy weight and I want them to move weight and drive performance, I'm not cueing them internally. But when I teach them how to deadlift, I'm going to emphasize position initially, right? I want them to uh, allow themselves to actually express range of motion and to load their hamstrings, load their glutes, and not just rely on hinging through their TL junction. Because as we know, like uh, a deadlift should be a lower body exercise, right? It should be a trunk stability exercise with range of motion through the limbs and through the lower body and strength and power being developed in the pushing muscles of our lower body. Uh, and so I think it just kind of dawned on me one day, I was like, you know, why does my back always hurt after deadlifts? And why do all my athletes tell me like all they feel is their back? I'm like, I must be doing something wrong because everybody else talks about it being a hamstring and a glute exercise. I don't feel anything back there. And now I look back and I realize like I was never loading those tissues to begin with. I was never putting them in a position to eccentrically load and then actually work as prime movers in the deadlift. And so by unlocking the knees a little bit and think of knees unlocking as a reach, right? I'm sure you've been exposed to the concept of reaching from PRI. Think of knees going forward as limbs reaching, right? It's the same as reaching your arms. When I push those knees forward a little bit and keep my feet flat, that is reaching knees. And when I reach a limb forward, that gives me the opportunity to move proximal structures back in space. So that gives me the opportunity to shift my center of mass back to get my hamstrings to actually bring my pelvis back to a more neutral position. And now that my hamstrings are a little less eccentrically lengthened, I can then talk about hinging and eccentrically loading them. And so, yeah, we, the way I coach a deadlift is trying to allow the person to express the movement options they inherently have. And then once they grip the bar, they're pushing, they're pushing through the ground and I'm cueing them externally because I don't want to have them focus internally while I'm trying to drive performance. But at the same time during the setup, I need to put them in the best position possible to express that range of motion and to load the tissues that I want to load. Yeah. And that's, that's so critical. Uh, not only for training ath strength athletes, but but sport athletes uh, even more so. Just because, uh, I mean, I'm in that camp. Like I was someone who uh, I was a much better puller than than squatter, and my I got my deadlift. I've never been that strong. Could deadlift double body weight, but even when I did it, I my hamstrings were really weak. And you know, it's kind of the thought is, oh, we'll just do more accessory hamstring work. You know, do more good mornings. And I still don't feel my hamstrings. And and I noticed that all of my good athletes I've ever worked with, I mean, they'll squat and say they feel in their hamstrings. And I was like, oh, well, good for you. You know, I wish I wish that was me. I, I <laughs> but it 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 makes a lot of sense. And and I think we always just look to, oh, if you're not feeling it, just do more of that muscle. But it's really the routing and the and like you said, length tension. And that's something I'm learning a lot about too. And getting the the muscle belly in the right position. So well, that's that's fascinating stuff, man. I uh, actually I wanted to kind of use that as a segue because I don't want to forget about this question. But you you talked a little bit about uh, internal versus external cueing and the idea of like I mean obviously you could internal cue an athlete to to the end of the earth with PRI principles in mind. And so yeah, and you talked a little bit about it just there. But do you want to give a little input on some of those distinctions that you're going to make when setting up an athlete's position and then when to let them go? Yeah, and I, I think this is something I'm really passionate about because I see kind of a, 
kind of a divide in the industry happening right now. I see some people who are, you know, pretty much like, we're just going to rip it, right? We're in the gym, we're lifting hard, let's go. And then I also see people who have taken their coursework in PRI or whatever three-letter acronym name system you want to talk about, and they've taken their understanding of functional anatomy and biomechanics, and they've turned performance training into this low-level motor control, constant internal cueing, feel this, sense this, and it's like, the weight room is not the time and the place for that. And there's a guy named Mike Ron Karate who uh, was the the head of uh, physical therapy for the Atlanta Hawks who killed this topic on the Robertson podcast a long time ago. And that was a huge influence on me. And same thing with Pat Davidson. It's like when there's a time to learn your body and to internally cue and to think about the position of your body and sensing things, I think it's the warm-up. Right? I think it's the corrective exercises, the low-level drills, the beginning of the training period where if you really need to feel something and I need you to have sense of a muscle or sense of a position, right? because that's, that's a huge part of it too is like a lot of PRI stuff, it, it comes back to the brain right? and really what we're influencing is the brain. We're, we're not just concerned about a left hamstring to posterior tilt the pelvis. We're actually remapping the brain's perception of the sagittal plane in terms of lower body gait, right? We're allowing the person to actually posterior tilt that pelvis with a hamstring and sense what left stance is like on a left side that they may not have had. And so that's that's really internal kind of biomechanically building cognitive stuff. And it's shocking how tiring it can be for somebody who's never experienced that before to actually try to feel that. You know, I was coaching that same kid yesterday through a left side lying right glute max, and I'm like, Hey, man, I need you to side bend left and give me a good exhale, right? I need you to feel your left heel, and I need you to feel the right arch of your foot, and I need you to push that right knee forward and feel that right butt. You got it? Cool. Do you feel your left inner thigh? Great. Okay, not quite. Find that left heel a little bit more for me. Shove that right knee forward. Good. We got it. Now, I need you to turn that right knee out to the side and give me a little bit more right butt. Okay, you got that? And by the time we're done all this internal cueing, the kid is smoked. His brain is is like short-circuiting. He's like, wow, I've never felt that before. But what I didn't do there is give him an opportunity to drive any sort of fitness or performance measure, right? And that's okay because in that circumstance, I needed him to be very internal and, and very cognizant of what he's sensing and the control of his body. Now, on the other hand, if I'm trying to get somebody to sprint fast, right, I can't have them thinking internally. If I'm telling them to feel a right arch or to feel their right glute or to sense their left ischiochondylar adductor, that internal focus is going to have a hugely negative impact on motor control at the brain level because the brain doesn't seem to be able to create uh, output at the same time that it's considering exactly how that output is being done, right? When we are in that sympathetic fight or flight act kind of mode, the brain has a pre-programmed um, list or set of movement, right? It already knows how to act. It acts reflexively. We're not thinking about it. If we're running away from a lion as fast as we can, we're certainly not thinking about how we're doing it. We're just focused on the external drive, the external goal of moving as fast as we can. And so I think the internal cueing, the biomechanical building stuff has to live in the warm-up and PT realm. And that's why it's such a small part of what I do. It's a couple sets, and if it's somebody who needs more, it's a few sets of a few breaths at the beginning of the workout. But then once we start training, 
and we're doing jumps or we're doing deadlifts or we're doing plyometrics, um, I'm, again, putting them in a good position from a setup perspective. But then once they are set up and they know how to do the exercise, we're training. I'm focused on external cueing. I'm focused on them pushing through the floor. I'm focusing on them driving through the wall. I'm setting goals for them to move the bar as fast as they can using velocity-based training, um, using jump mat technology to try to drive intent into their jumps. So it's like I think we have to be very careful not to overload the weight room with these internal cued kind of very uh, sensory-dependent activities when we have to appreciate that things like power, strength, capacity, and hypertrophy are just as important for management and, and performance um, as anything else. And I think as an industry, we may have been a little bit enamored with some of the things we're learning from some of these systems, uh, and we've kind of let it infiltrate and take over what we do. And we have to remember that we are performance and, and uh, you know basically performance-driving specialists, and that if PRI can help us uh, get somebody in a little bit of a better position to execute what we're asking them to do, then that's fantastic. And if we can cue somebody and teach them to move more effectively so that, like I said, in a deadlift, they can load the structures we want and be more effective, then fantastic. But once it's time to lift heavy things and to move fast, it's time to be goal-directed, externally cued, and to really just focus on doing things as well and as strong and as powerfully as we possibly can um, and then in the warm-up or the cool-down is where we can kind of take things back to the body more and have the person be more cognizant of their position and their, their sense of their body in space. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, that's that's right on, man. I, I love that information. I, I It makes me think, too, of I think uh, just us as coaches are often uh, overdriven and wanting to cue people up, even in... And it's like realizing that time to let it go a little bit, you know, you got as I've grown as a coach, I, I realize the time to cue and then the time to let it go. And you even think, too, of like the, it almost like the thing, the cyclical nature of of coaching athletes or life in general and like athletes who uh, have to get hurt, and have to go to rehab and then come back jumping higher and those types of things because they needed that short cycle of the, the internal cues and feeling it. But then they have to go out and they have to they have to let their body do its thing without those cues. And so, it, yeah, and just the cyclical nature, even within the workout itself. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's nice too, just to kind of, I don't know, I, I think I'm a little ADD sometimes and I like just to have shifts of the coaching and feeling the shifts of the session and what, where it's headed. I, that's awesome stuff, man. I, that was really, really cool for me to hear and listen to. Uh, I'd like to get a little bit to, uh, you talked a little bit about coaching the deadlift uh, and I'd like to maybe between, I want to get in your squat progression too, but if you have any ideas of the deadlift here, and maybe this is near and dear to me because my hamstrings are terrible, uh, <laughs> but like, uh, could you uh, give me your take on approaching squatting uh, with, with PRI principles in mind. How are you progressing an athlete up? What are some things you're looking for? Uh, how are you moving through the ranks through like uh, goblet squats and, and out? And uh, just oh, give us a layout yeah, of that. I think the squat is, is a big one and it's one that uh, I struggled with for a long time and still struggle with myself. And then I think from a coaching standpoint, there's so much information out there as to uh, what is a proper squat. And I think we need to bring it back to a few relatively simple things, right? And so those are, if I want to actually differentiate a squat from a hinge or a squat from a deadlift, what I really need to be doing 
is thinking about a more vertical torso position, right? So not entirely upright, a little bit angled forward is okay. But if my squat ends up looking exactly like the torso position of my deadlift, then I really don't consider that a squat, right? And so a squat to me is a natural hinge of the ankles, knees, and hips, right? So I'm not focusing on a hips back position. I'm not focusing at all, and I'll get to this in a second, on not letting the knees go forward, right? I want knees to track forward. I want dorsiflexion. I want the hips to hinge naturally back, and I want the person to essentially just sit straight down with a vertical torso, with the rib cage sitting as over top of the pelvis as possible so that those two things are as congruent as possible because the relationship between the thoracic and pelvic diaphragm is going to allow me to create maximal and proper intra-abdominal pressure to stabilize my entire thorax, right? Pressure is what stabilizes the thorax. Pressure is what keeps our spine safe, right? It's not this um, kind of arbitrary neutral spine position that we think of, right? What is neutral spine? Nobody actually can define it. Uh, but really what we're looking for is to be able to pressurize the thorax. And then on top of that, as we spoke about before, the position of that axial skeleton and those proximal structures will allow me to actually load the tissues I want to load and it'll allow me to express the range of motion I have. And, and this is another great analogy that I've learned from PRI is when you're talking about expressing hip flexion, right? Imagine you are on, you are hopping into a 10 floor elevator. And so that elevator normally has 10 floors. If you get on the first floor, you can go up your full 10 floors and the life is great. If you hop on the third floor and say, this is a 10 floor elevator, take me up 10 floors it's not going to work. You're going to hit the top a lot sooner than you wanted to, or you're going to blast through the roof. And that's what's happening sometimes when we try to express hip flexion from a position of anterior tilt and extension, right? Hip, I mean, uh, anterior tilt is hip flexion, right? We are moving the acetabulum over the femur into a position of hip flexion. So I'm already starting on the third floor if I haven't set myself up in a more neutral position. And then people wonder why they have trouble expressing hip flexion in the squat. It's like, well, maybe you already started in hip flexion. So you're limiting the range that you naturally had. So I, when I set up a squat, I'm looking for the person to exhale initially, right? I want them to soften their knees a little bit and reach their knees forward while they keep their weight through the middle of their foot. I want them to contact their big toe, their little toe, and their heel on the ground. And that's just some reference points to allow them to understand that I want their full foot. I don't just want heel. I don't want toes. I want their full foot touching the floor, and I want them to feel their body weight through the middle of their foot, right? So if I can do that, now I can now I can manage their center of mass a little bit. I can manage their center of gravity and have them express a better squat. So we got our knees reaching forward. From here, we're exhaling to bring the rib cage down in and back and to give the thoracic diaphragm power, right? And that's what we, we really want when we're talking about maximizing that intra-abdominal pressure. And let's say for a second, we're using a, a heavily loaded squat, right? We're, we're doing a barbell back squat for one rep max. If I take a belly breath, right? Or if I just get a huge breath in that people think they're, they're locking themselves into a good position to squat in, and I take that belly breath, really what I'm doing is I'm just driving everything forward. Right? I'm disadvantaging my abdominals. My thorax is going to move forward. My pelvis is going to tilt. And I got this big belly full of air and I think I'm doing things correctly. But I haven't actually maximized intra-abdominal pressure because the pressure has moved forward. Right, And the abdominals have given way. And that's where all the pressures go. What I want to do is exhale first. 
bring the rib cage down in and back and give myself a zone of apposition for which the diaphragm can then lay over the rib cage. I mean, the rib cage can lay over the diaphragm. And then when I take my breath in now with active abdominals, now the pressure expands throughout the entire thorax. It goes up into the chest. It goes out into the belly. It goes through the lower back. And I have a canister. I have a strong canister through which to move. So that's just for like heavy strength training. But if I'm coaching a regular you know, squat, somebody new to squatting, I got my soft knees. I got my full foot. I have my ribs down in the back with some active abs. And now what I'm telling them to do is I'm trying to bring their back pockets down towards the floor just a little bit, right? And that's going to that's gonna kind of bring us back from that anterior tilted, tilted position back to the middle ground just a tad. And from there, I'm telling them to sit down and back naturally, right? I want knees to track over the middle of the foot. I want weight to stay through the middle of the foot. I want hips to go back at the exact same time that the knees are going forward. So there's no initiation of hips first or knees first, both flex at the same time. And then I want them to keep a decently vertical torso with that good relationship of rib cage and pelvis as they descend. And on the way up, I want them to push through the ground. I'm focused on pushing through the middle of the foot and standing straight up, right? And I had this conversation with somebody the other day who we were working with who's come from another system. And she was cueing, sit back, sit back, sit back. And, you know, I came up through that too, so I, I totally understood it. And I was talking to her and I was like, you know, when we look at this position, right, with a forward angle torso and hips that are traveling way back, uh, she was kind of cueing not to let the knees for, go forward as well. And this is pervasive in the industry too. But I think uh, what we need to recognize is if we don't have the knees go forward, right, and we don't dorsiflex and we don't flex the knee as much, that force has to go somewhere. It doesn't just disappear. And so where it goes next is going to be up the chain to where the hinge is happening more, and that's the hips, right? But if an athlete doesn't have enough hip flexion, and most don't, to sit into a below parallel squat without letting their knees go forward, that's just not going to happen. Where is the load then going to go next? And it's going to go to the lumbar spine, right? And so now what you're doing is you're combating that load with extension through your erectors. And I don't want my athletes loading their erectors as prime movers in a squat. It, they should be active, right? Of course, they're going to help stabilize the spine. But what I want in a squat is I want hamstrings, glutes, quads. I want big pushing muscles to be loaded. And so if we're not loading those muscles, then you know what are we actually doing with our squat? And so what I actually want is some tension to remain in the hamstrings as the person descends, right? And we don't talk a lot about the hamstrings in the squat. But they're a critical player in keeping control of that pelvis as we descend, right, along with the abdominals. If we just allow the erectors and the hip flexors and quads to go unchecked, they're going to pull the pelvis forward. And now we're right back into that extension posture that we were talking about or that extension position. So if I keep active abdominals and I keep active eccentrically lengthening hamstrings, right, because an eccentric contraction is an active contraction. If I keep that active contraction happening as I sit straight down and descend into the squat, now I have a chance to keep my pelvic floor under my rib cage, right? And I have a chance to drive the upward movement of my squat with hamstrings, glutes, and quads as opposed to just my back and my quads, right? And so that's really important to me. So when I start and I look at somebody who's squatting, my initial reaction is I'll usually start with a body weight squat. And for some people, that's, that's a struggle, right? I'll have them reach their arms forward to help offset their center of mass a little and let them move their rib cage back and to sit more straight down. But some people may struggle with that. And I think where we get caught up sometimes is we think, 
Um, well, if they can't do a body weight squat, then we shouldn't load them, right? There's just no reason to because we can't get past that. But I'm then going to actually move them to something else and see if adding some anterior load is going to clean up their mechanics, right? And if it cleans up their mechanics, then it's probably not an issue of pure mobility or a restriction in their range of motion ability. Um, it's probably going to be more about the management of their center of mass and their ability to actually uh, express that range of motion that they inherently have. So I'll go to goblet squat after that, and I'll try that out. And if that cleans it up, great, then we found the goblet squat. And from there, it's about deciding what is the goal of squatting, right? What is the goal of squatting for this person? If it's a football player who needs to get bigger and stronger, I'm going to try to load them with either next would be a double kettlebell rack squat and then a safety bar squat and then a front squat. And at last resort, if they needed to or I felt it was appropriate, I would go to a back squat because that posteriorly loaded squat is actually going to make it much more difficult for them to not extend and not go forward in the sagittal plane. So I'm going to go to all those other options. And if it's that football player who needs to get big and strong, maybe the answer is using a safety bar. Right, That safety bar is going to allow me to reach my elbows forward and to bring my hands forward. And anytime I can reach an appendage forward, it allows me to shift everything back. So that might help them to actually be able to sit straight down better but still load it relatively heavily. Now, if there's somebody who struggles with the goblet squat, I might have to regress. Right, I might have to go to some sort of offset reaching plate squat or a goblet squat to box. And that offset reaching plate squat is going to, again, teach them to sit back a little bit and be able to sit vertically because it forces them to sit back. Otherwise, they'd fall right on their face. But I think anteriorly loaded lifts uh, clean up a lot of problems in that case and allow us to do a lot of the things that I just talked about from a squatting perspective while still loading the person safely and effectively. Uh, but again, it's all about just deciding what this person's goals are and what I need to accomplish with this squat. Oh, that's that's good stuff. And I, I think it was probably first 10 years ago I, I had heard uh, Coach Chris Corfus talking about how athletes who had back squatted a lot were suddenly losing like this this pop off their, t off their toes and their sprinting and they lost their glutes. And when you think about it in the sense of like the low bar back squat and you're, you're just driving extension through your erectors and, and paraspinals and, and having to like get in that position, it makes sense that you would start to kind of turn off some of those downstream muscles um, in favor of that. You, you almost, uh, let's see what they call it, uh, second butt syndrome. <laughs> so your, your, your butt now actually moves up to your erectors and these people are driving fake hip extension through their back. And they're using their quads a ton and they don't have hamstrings and glutes that are positioned to work. And so that's where we run into. And I think to another point that you had, uh, we've turned cues that were once a relationship between a coach and an athlete. We've turned those things into techniques, right? Chest up, big back, knees out, right? Things like that were once a relationship between a coach and an athlete to fix a specific problem that a coach saw. And somehow they've become the go-to technique that we teach and cue with athletes. But that's not the technique of how to do a squat or a deadlift, right? It's we, we want to be able to put people in a position to express full range of motion and to load those structures the way we want. Um, and that's important. And then the other end of it is think about sports. How often in any athletic endeavor are we getting somebody to not let their knee go forward, right? It never happens. Like in any sport, we need dorsiflexion. We need the knee to track forward over the toe, oh, excuse me, over the toe. And when we do that, um, and when we tell them to sit back, we're not actually helping them at all. We're, we're, we're afraid to load their knee 
Um, and we're really, as physical preparation coaches, I think failing because we're supposed to prepare the athlete for the potential stress and the demands of sport. And a squat and the eccentric load from a squat is a great way to do that, to prepare them for some of those higher forces. But we have to allow the knee to track forward. We have to allow dorsiflexion to occur. Um, and if we just tell them to you know, sit back and have a vertical tibia, that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, in running like speed camps for baseball players. I and and just even like their agility. One of the things I'll do is I'll I'll have everyone keep their shins perpendicular and say, okay, now move around like this. Like, see how fast you go, uh, or or any athlete really. And it's always like, oh yeah. I mean, obviously, they, you know, these aren't kids who are in the weight room yet, or a lot of them. But it it it's always that's always interesting to me. And the more good coaches I've listened to and learned from the last three years, I've I've definitely learned about that. That knees forward is is okay. It's it's good. And but how you mentioned it, keeping the keeping the thorax over the pelvis in that that line and allowing the legs to do their job, that makes really good sense. Because before I just thought of it in terms of well, you're in dorsiflexion sport, dorsiflexion squat, but I hadn't really thought about it as much from considering the upstream mechanics. And so that was a really good clarification. Uh, the last uh, kind of question I have with squat, and actually the last question I have for you today is like the idea of uh, like knees, ever pushing you know knees out, and I guess whether you're uh, absent of the torso, like people cueing knees out and, and the role of the adductors in the squat and those types of things. Are people putting bands to uh, resist and people pushing their knees out? Uh, what do you think about that stuff? I think uh, based on context, it's it's entirely overused in my opinion. We've become, um, we've become very uh, glute happy. We think of the glutes as like the beginning and end of everything. And we think that everybody has these valgus moments that their knee is going to explode and if their knees aren't out then they're not going to be able to squat properly right and i don't think that that's the case and as somebody who's done that i can tell you all it did for me is just make my vastus lateralis on both sides like the biggest strongest most powerful muscle and just fire that thing up like crazy but what it didn't allow me to do is to maintain the the position and the kinematics that we just spoke about and the reason is because in many cases, external rotation is going to be coupled with extension and abduction, right? So extension through the lumbar spine, um, anterior tilt of the pelvis, external rotation and abduction all coupled together, right? And so if I'm constantly cueing and trying to drive external rotation in a squat, I'm moving to the outside of my foot, right? I'm driving that abduction and that external rotation, and I'm also driving extension. I'm not allowing my pelvis to sit more properly, right, in a vertical fashion like we want. We said we want a little bit of a vertical torso. We want to hinge naturally through the hips, right? And we want to actually allow all of the lower body musculature, um, the two joint muscles to act, right? And so um, I think, again, this this comes back to like a little bit of a functional anatomy appreciation. Um, but, you know, adductors can be not only adductors, but they can be external rotators, they can be internal rotators, right? Position is going to drive function in many ways. And so when I'm loading into a squat, I'm not necessarily thinking about uh, using my adductors necessarily, but I'm trying to position them along with hamstrings and quads and abs so that all of these things can offset one another and allow for a more natural squat and then a better push with the lower body. So I see a lot of people who are just constantly driving external rotation for no reason. Now, if somebody is going into valgus or they have a significant like deviation inwards with their knee, I may give them a cue of 
you know, push the floor apart or spread the floor or, you know, push out against my hand and see if that cleans it up. But sometimes that isn't necessarily going to clean up the fault, right? And we may need to look at what kind of range of motion abilities do they actually have. Maybe the reason they're diving into valgus is because they're running out of internal rotation on that side, and therefore now the internal rotation needs to happen at the, at the knee, right? And so that kind of movement of the femur going one way and the tibia going the other is potentially hazardous, but it's a compensatory mechanism because they're lacking some sort of control or range of motion up the chain. So I can cue them all I want. It, again, may not clean that up. And what I think you know we need to appreciate about the squat is we need internal rotation of the hip to squat, right? We need to be able to express um, adduction and internal rotation to be able to squat effectively. And so we want adductors to be able to help to keep the pelvic floor open as we descend because they attach the pelvis and when they contract bilaterally, they help to keep that pelvic floor open, the, the pelvic outlet open. If we are just externally rotating, extending and abducting like crazy, now I have no chance of aligning the thorax over the pelvis. I'm not going to be able to get a pelvic floor involved in the squat. I'm not going to be able to get hamstrings involved in the squat the way I want. I'm going to be very quote unquote quad dominant and I'm back to my situation where I'm using erectors to drive up. So what I tell people is I want those those knees to just naturally hinge straight ahead over the middle of the foot, right? I'm not cueing in. I'm not cueing out necessarily. What I'm allowing them to do is naturally hinge straight over the middle of the foot and then push through the ground on the way up. And by doing that, now I've maximized the position of those bones to allow all of the muscles to do their job um, and to kind of keep everything uh, in line so that now I can express better movement up the chain and at the lower body joints that are moving. And so I think we need to be careful with you know, a lot of band work with, you know, pushing the knees apart and mini band sidesteps and cueing knees out all the time in the squat. Again, it's a, it's a relationship between a coach and an athlete. And that athlete was probably going into valgus and that's kind of become rampant as like the position to squat in. Um, and then we also need to appreciate what the goal of the squat is, right? If I'm doing a heavily loaded squat, I certainly don't want knees necessarily going in, right? I don't want valgus, um, but we also need to differentiate between knees coming in and valgus. It's two different things, right? Internal rotation and valgus are, are not the same. So if I'm doing a loaded squat, I don't necessarily want that, but I want that natural tracking to occur so that I can maximize the load and maximize the position of the joints to safely and effectively move that load. But if I'm doing like a flexion-based squat or like a quote-unquote functional squat like PRI talks about where you are changing levels while keeping your pelvic outlet open and aligning that uh, that thoracic diaphragm over the pelvic diaphragm directly and I'm trying to do a more restful and relaxing squat, that's going to be a different ballgame. I may actually have the person squeeze something between their knees to get adductors because those adductors will keep the pelvic floor open, right? And it'll keep the pelvic outlet open. And then I'm going to have them change levels while they exhale and they reach their knees forward and they reach their arms forward while they keep their feet flat. And the squat is one of the functional squat or the flexion-based squat that you will not do under load under any circumstance, but that you might do as a movement prep or corrective measure. The maintenance of that squat is one of the best possible ways to inhibit the entire extension tone and the extensor strategy. It's one of the best ways uh, to be able to find these muscles we're talking about and to express 
um, a full restful position that inhibits all of that sympathetic tone that expands the posterior rib cage that gives us flexion and posterior pelvic tilt. Um, and, and, you know, PRI talks a lot about, you know, looking at countries that spend a lot of time squatting, right? Um, a lot of cultures that squat to eat or squat to go to the bathroom, they tend to have a lot less back problems and they tend to have a lot less hip problems than countries that are sitting all the time, right? And a lot of times it's because they have the ability to achieve this full, restful, natural squatting position that'll allow us to shut off extensor tone. So if that's the case, then, I am, then I'm all for squeezing and getting adductors, um, squeezing a ball of some kind, reaching knees forward, reaching arms forward, getting abs and moving all those proximal structures back in space. So again, it's, it really depends on what the goal of that squatting exercise is, and then it just depends on what the person is presenting to me. Yeah, I think one thing you said there in particular that stuck out, and I think that so many coaches uh, and, and bio, even biomechanist movement people need to know is, yeah, that valgus and internal rotation are not the same thing. And I, even for me in like my dynamic movements for years, I'd watch myself doing plyometrics or jumping, and I'd see my knees come together when I did it. And, and I mean, I didn't have a knee problem for, for years. Like, no, and, and I, it, suddenly I realized, wait, that's internal rotation. That's not, that's not the, the tibia shifting on the, um, the femur. Like that's, that's kind of normal. And like, but, but the ability to see that, uh, when it does go wrong and is, I think a little bit of coaching fine art, but that was a big, that was a big one for me. And I love what you said about the adductors and the pelvic floor. I hadn't really put that connection together in the, I think a lot, a, a heck of a lot of athletes could do really well with doing some adductor based squatting as opposed to the typical paradigms that we always see. Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. And it's a game changer for a lot of people because, um, it's just something they're not exposed to. And again, like that pelvic floor and the pelvic the position of the pelvic outlet is going to give our thoracic diaphragm uh, power, right? It's going to allow us to manage pressure inside of the thorax and it's going to help to manage that pressure. And if we don't have a well-positioned pelvic floor, then we're not going to have them working synchronously, moving together, right? The thoracic diaphragm and the pelvic diaphragm. Uh, and so a lot of athletes, because they're so externally rotated, so constantly abducted and so extended, they have no ability to get out of that. And back to our variability talk, now they have limited options. They have limited variability. And even though that extension strategy, that external rotation strategy may be awesome for driving performance and moving big weight and moving fast, and you know that's an important thing for them to have, the question is, can we offset that and get them out of it just enough and manage that enough that they don't break down, they don't get hurt, they don't constantly overload the same tissues, and we give them more movement options or at least enough movement options that we can get them in the positions we want. And so that squatting is a big part, like a squatting bar reach or uh, an offset reaching plate squat with a more flexion, you know, biased position is something we'll include in a lot of athletes' warm-up program to allow them to change levels feeling hamstrings, feeling adductors, feeling abs, and just shutting off and inhibiting that entire extension tone all the way down the posterior aspect of their body. Um, and that, that's really a powerful thing. Yeah, I love it, man. Well, that was uh, so much good stuff. And I, I think that it's it's just like stuff the industry, uh, that's, that's it's coaches like you and those those who are learning alongside you that I think are making are pushing our industry forward in this regards and helping a lot of athletes out. So uh, thanks for everything today. I learned a lot talking to you, a lot of stuff to consider and put into practice. So again, appreciate your time, Justin, on the podcast. 
thanks again for having me, Joel. And it was a lot of fun and it's really good to, to meet you and get to talk to you. And uh, I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks for tuning in with us today. Appreciate having you here. And Justin is pushing the field forward. It's great to have young coaches like him on the show. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology such as the K-Box, Freelap, Gym Aware. Uh, they have force plates, contact grids, tons of awesome stuff, an amazing blog. Check them out, simplyfaster.com. We'll see you guys next week.